Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! Pack your bags and get ready for a different kind of Vegas experience with someone who knows Vegas inside and out. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Live from the Vegas Strip, welcome to Vegas Never Sleeps. I'm Stephen Maggi. We hope to see the great entertainers back up and down the Strip. One of those greats is comedian Tom Dreesen, the man who opened for Sinatra in the late 20th century. You'll hear from Tom today. Scott Robin is back again as your Vegas insider. Today, Scott smashes a myth about Bugsy Siegel and the Flamingo Hotel and then tells us about a new hotel that's coming to town. At least that's the plan. Finally, are you itching to get back to the slots? Well, if you are, you might as well win. We will ask Professor Slots how to do just that. But first, let's meet a comedy legend. You're about to meet one of the great comedians uh, out there today. He's been doing it for 30-some-odd years. You've seen him, certainly. He's been on TV over 500 times, a regular on The Tonight Show. And you might know him best as the opening act for the great Frank Sinatra for 13 years. And in addition to that, he also does quite a bit of philanthropy. Dude, I'm an ex-GI. I spent four years in the military, and I've performed in Iraq, and I, I, I've been doing military. I, this is my 48th year in show business, by the way. So my whole career, whenever I get a chance to entertain our troops, I do. Because I remember what it was like when I was in the service, and if some guy would come and play harmonica, we were thrilled, you know. <laughs> yeah. So I, I like to do that. Well, yeah, that was a thing. You know, everybody thinks of Bob Hope, but I imagine when you're in the service like that, like you say, just a little bit of that, you know, coming from home just feels so good, and the chance to laugh in a place that's not a lot of fun. Yeah, that's for sure. And, and uh, you know, there's still a lot of guys out there that do that, Gary Sinise being one. Gary Sinise has now probably done more shows for our troops than Bob Hope did because Bob Hope would do, you know, a few a year around Christmas time. Gary does 40 to 50 uh, shows a year with the Gary Sinise Lieutenant Dan Band, <clears throat> and, and, uh, and the, the troops just love him, you know. Yeah, great guy, too. I've met him on a few, a few occasions. He and Joe Montaigne, really close friends, and they do a lot with the military. It's, a, it's yeah. really great. They're my buddies, too. We're all Chicago guys, you know, so we, we get together every chance we get. Joe Montaigne has a place called Taste Chicago over in Burbank where we go over there, and he has these Chicago beef, Chicago hot dogs, Chicago pizza. And so sometimes Dennis Franz and, and uh, Gary Sinise, myself, and uh, William Peterson, uh, you know, the Chicago guys. Dennis Farina used to do it, and Dennis passed away. You know, but whenever we can get a chance, we get together and hang out. So I imagine you must be a Cubs fan then, along with the rest of them, right? You had uh, a great year a couple of years ago, huh? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I've been a Cub fan all my life, and I was raised on the South Side. There were all White Sox fans when I was growing up. And, you know, I didn't realize. I was five years old listening to the Cub games on the radio with my dad. And, you know, uh, and, and so by the time I was eight years old, I realized I was in enemy territory, you know. 
By the yeah. time I was nine years old, I could take a punch, you know. <laughs> White well, Sox fans hated Cub fans, you know. Oh, yeah, tough time. You know, and especially with the White Sox and won a couple of World Series. I know, you know, I'm a guy I used to announce years and years and years ago with Pat Hughes when we were in college together. And, yeah, he was telling me you just can't imagine uh, what that meant to that city because these people, a lot of them thought they were never going to uh, see a championship in their entire lifetime. Oh, I know, 108 years before the Cubs won a World Series. So it was it was a magnificent moment in 2016. I mean, the world, uh, you know, all of us thought. I'll tell you what my biggest fear was, Steve. <clears throat> I always thought that the Cub fans, there were least suicides among Cub fans than any other baseball fandom. Because every year, each Cub fan would say, well, this might be the year that they win the World Series. So when the Cubs finally did win the World Series, I was afraid that the next day 20,000 people would be jumping off the top of the Tribune Tower. <laughs> yeah, they'd be just waiting. To live for. <laughs> well, now I got it, you know. Well, you know, you know you, again, we, we know you uh, from all those Tonight Show appearances and so forth. You know, the working for Frank Sinatra, I got to ask you, and I know you, you, you've done an act where you kind of talk about that. I guess what a thrill of a lifetime, right, to be around greatness like that. Yeah, for me, you know, I, I do a 90-minute show now called An Evening of Laughter and Memories of Sinatra. So it's a 90-minute show of, of stand-up comedy. I, of course, I'm a stand-up comedian. I do a lot of stand-up comedy, but I segue over to a bar, and there's a bottle of Jack Daniels on the bar, which was Frank's drink of choice. And I tell a real funny story at the bar, and all the lights go out in the theater when the people are laughing. And on the screen, Frank comes on singing. You know, it's quarter to three. There's no one in the place except you and me. That saloon song, one yeah. for my baby. And when he gets to the chorus, make it one for my baby and one more for the road, the spotlight hits me, and now I'm in a bar, and I've come home, and the audience is in a bar with me. And I tell them the first time I heard that voice, I was eight years old, shining shoes in a bar on the south side of Chicago, and he was on the jukebox. And then I take the audience from that little boy hearing Sinatra on the jukebox on the south side of Chicago to one day carrying his coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills, California. And, and while I'm telling stories, pictures are coming on the screen authenticating the story, as well as video of Frank and I together. And, and, uh, in, and in it are the stories of what it was like being around this man for 14 years in 45, 50 cities a year. This, this great Frank Sinatra, you know, uh, the different sides of him, being alone with him in, in a car at 3 o'clock in the morning riding around in the desert, just him and I. <clears throat> staying at his home, you know, or being in this private jet flying from one gig to another, you know, or being on stage, you know, uh, with this with this great artist. I, if I, <clears throat> you know, I, I always say this, in my lifetime, I've always liked live performers. When I was growing up, if you said to me, played a word association game with me, if you said love, I'd say mom. If you said baseball, I'd say Chicago Cubs. If you said show business, I said Frank Sinatra. Yeah. You know, Sammy Davis, Dean Martin, they were live entertainers. And and so for me to, I toured with Sammy Davis for three years. I, I did the Dean Martin shows and did some private gigs with uh, Dean Martin and also with Frank Sinatra for 14 years. If you, uh, if, I never cared if CBS, ABC, NBC, if they liked me, if these men thought I was good enough to be on the same stage with them, then that's all that mattered to me. You can close the lid on my coffin now. Uh, you yeah. know, even though I'm out there working all the time. But that meant more to me than anything else, being around those entertainers, and they thought I was good enough to be on the same stage with them. That's all the approval I needed. Well, and that is quite the compliment. I mean, they just simply didn't work with people they didn't respect. And, you know, to have the respect of those guys, which 
people that weren't around in the in the 60s and 50s, they don't realize, I mean, that was the biggest act in show business at the time. Well, Frank Sinatra was the biggest act in show business to the end. You yeah. know, he sold out in Moscow at age 78. He sold out in Argentina. He sold out in Japan. You know, name me an artist that was a star for 60 years. For 60 years. It's, it's, he, it, he recorded the only male artist ever to record in seven decades, in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. And in the 90s, the largest album of all time was a duets album of his career. You know, yeah. he won the Academy Award. You forget what a brilliant actor he was. That he, he, this is a man who never took an acting lesson. One time I was sitting with Kirk Douglas, Gregory Peck, uh, Clint Eastwood, uh, Robert Wagner, and Frank Sinatra, and they were talking about acting. And I was just curious, and I said to Frank, did you ever study acting? Because I want to know who he studied with. Gregory Peck grabbed my arm and said acting lessons would have ruined him. He was a, a diamond in the rough that you didn't fool with. This is a man who never took an acting lesson and won the Academy Award. He's incredible. And he danced with Gene Kelly, for God's sake. You know. When you gave Frank Sinatra a song, to him it was a script. What did the writer feel the night the writer took pen in hand? You know, he would immerse himself in that lyric and become that lonely guy in the bar whose woman left him, and he's never going to find love again. And you felt that pain in a 20,000-seat arena. Well, the guy in the furthest row could feel that, that what Frank Sinatra was singing about, because no one ever, ever interpreted lyrics the way he did. You know, he was truly one of a kind, you know. Yeah. And, and arguably the greatest career show business has ever known. More with comedian Tom Dreesen in just a moment. Remember, please visit Vegas Never Sleeps online. For the best in Vegas, it's VegasNeverSleeps.com. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi, coast to coast on the Talk Media Network. If you're living with diabetes and using insulin, you know the pain of pricking your fingers over and over again. By wearing a small remote device called a continuous glucose monitor or CGM, you can reduce the pain of pricking your fingers right away. If you're testing your blood sugar four or more times per day, injecting insulin three or more times per day, or using an insulin pump, call the Diabetic Health Hotline today and learn about the latest CGM technology. A CGM can immediately reduce pain. It's accurate, easy to use, and help you make better diabetes treatment decisions. And if you have Medicare, you can get a new CGM at little or no out-of-pocket cost. Plus, get free shipping and we'll bill your insurance company for you. Call now to receive your new continuous glucose monitor at little or no out-of-pocket cost. Paid for by U.S. Medical Supply. Call 800-273-2295. That's 800-273-2295. Again, 800-273-2295. That's 800-273-2295. Boy, man, I had a rough night's sleep. Boy, I got a letter from the IRS yesterday and I I just couldn't sleep. Man, I'm dying here. Somebody help me. IRS problems affect more than just your finances. If you're ready to take back control of your life and you owe more than $10,000, you need to call Call the tax doctor. Their expert staff can immediately protect you from the IRS and state collectors and get you the best possible tax settlement guaranteed. The IRS has recently released new programs geared in helping struggling taxpayers, where you may qualify to settle your tax debt and wipe out up to 85% or more of what you currently owe. If you owe $10,000 or more in back taxes, call the tax doctor right now. See if you qualify to pay less. 
Call 800-511-6983. That's 800-511-6983. Again, 800-511-6983. That's 800-511-6983. Welcome back to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You are listening to comedian Tom Dreesen, who toured for years with Frank Sinatra. Well, and that's why people, you know, you can't see him, unfortunately, he's gone. But uh, if you get a chance, you want to see an evening of laughter, memories of Sinatra from a stand-up comedian with uh, Tom. Tom, you tell one story that I read on your website, and I wonder if you could share it with us for a minute. In those later years, you know, as we all do, as you get a little older, he had a rough time one time, and he actually forgot the words, and it was really poignant. You said he got his support from the crowd and got past it. Could you kind of share that? He he was 78 years old, and and, uh, we were touring all over the country doing one-nighters, and he uh, actually would freak lyrics once in a while. He'd just skip a lyric or something. And one night, uh, we were at the Mark Auditorium in the Quad Cities in, in Illinois. It's, it's um, Bentoncourt, Iowa, Davenport, Iowa, um, Moline, Illinois, and uh, the, the, the four Quad Cities up there in the Mark Auditorium. And it was a great show. The, the audience was great. I came off stage. Frank went on, and he was doing great. He did three songs in a row and was knocking them dead. He got to the fourth song, and he totally blanked on the lyrics. Now, he was on stage, and the orchestra was in the pit down below, and they didn't realize that he had skipped the lyrics. And now he was standing there, and they were playing, and he was whispering into the microphone, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm just so sorry. And the orchestra, realizing that he wasn't with them, started winding their instruments down one at a time to pretty soon this eerie silence in this huge 15,000-seat arena. And now he's, you can hear him whispering, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. And, and, and I thought, oh, my God, this is it. We're going home. This is it. This is, this is the end of the career. And I started working my way stage left that I was going to say to him, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> it's time to go home, Mr. S. You know, it's been a great career, but it's time to go home. And uh, in the real silence of the, of the arena, a guy way up on top of the arena stood up and he hollered as loud as he could, that's all right, Frank. That's all right. We love you, Frank. It's okay. And he started to applaud. And people around him started to applaud. And then pretty soon, everybody in that section was applauding. And then it started going throughout the arena. All throughout the arena, the applause, until finally everyone in the arena was just cheering and applauding. And he turned, and I thought he was going to walk off the stage, and it was over. He turned, and you could see he had a tear in his eye. And he walked a couple steps, and he turned around and went back to center stage, and they would not stop applauding. And finally, they stopped. And he went into the next number, which was Mac the Knife, and he absolutely drilled that song. He had every nuance, every lyric, like he was a 19-year-old kid again. And when he finished that song, <clears throat> the people in the arena stood and would not stop cheering for almost 10 minutes. It, was, it, was, it, it, it gave me chills, you know. What a great and, moment. And finally when they sat down, <clears throat> before he went into the next number, he pointed up to the guy up on top, and he said, I love you too, pal. And he sang for two years after that. That guy doesn't know it. That one fan brought him back from the ashes, you know, wow. to, to go on to sing for two more years after that. Well, what a great career. But, you know, people need to know, 
you are a great stand-up comedian, and I say that because, you know, I know people that are, like, my daughter's age have seen you, think you're great, old people think you're great, and everything in between, you know, so you've been able to do this, and you've done it clean, which nowadays, for a comedian, is tough to do. Is that something you just have, have always done and just decided that you were going to work uh, clean from the beginning? Well, <clears throat> you know, I'm, and you can be naughty, but not dirty, you know, but... But, I, you know, when I started out, wherever you went in America, Steve, in 1975, wherever you went, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh, yeah? Have you ever been on Johnny Carson? <laughs> Have you ever been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America? You just weren't a comedian. You might want to be one. Or you might going to be one. But to America, you weren't a comedian until you've been on Johnny Carson. So as a businessman, you say, well, how do I get on Johnny Carson? You watch the show, and you realize you had the right material they could make grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, and the kids laugh. You know, there was no cable television in those days. So when cable television came along, you could work as filthy as you wanted to work, and you'd get a sitcom the next day. Yeah. But in, in our day, you, you had to work clean, you know. So I ended up, as you, I think, pointed out, I did 61 appearances on The Tonight Show. So I had to keep coming up with new material and that kind of material. So I, I developed a wealth of that material which actually helped me later on down the line because not only was I touring with Sammy Davis Jr. and, and working with Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra and people like that, you know, Mac Davis and Smokey Robinson, well, you know, families were coming to see those artists, you know, yeah. and so they didn't want to be offended. So those artists, I, I got more work than a lot of other comedians, and then corporate America would hire me because they, you know, they didn't want their clients to uh, be, uh, you know, insulted or, or offended, you know. So it's been a, a, a lucrative career for a great, it's, you know, it's a great career move for me working clean, you know. Well, yeah, I think we're starting to see a little bit of a return to that in the sense that people talk about your work, you know, of course, Jerry Seinfeld, even Jim Gaffigan. I, th I think there's a, a, a real want for that because, like you say, you can be naughty without being filthy and, and uh I'll tell you a funny story. Two comedians at the Laugh Factory, I was trying out new material uh, at the Laugh Factory here in L.A. in Hollywood, <clears throat> and uh, I was upstairs going over my notes, and the two comedians didn't know I was there, two young comedians. They were around the corner, and I heard them. They were talking about me. One of them said, you know, Tom Dreesen's here, and the other comedian said, oh, yeah, he's old school. And the other comedian said, old school? What do you mean? He said, well, he doesn't use the F word. The other comedian said, he doesn't use the F word. What does he use for adjectives? And I stuck my head around the corner and I said, adjectives. That's what I use for adjectives, you know. That's the problem. <clears throat> See, when you, a lot of young comedians say, say, well, if I swear and if I curse, that, then I'm pushing the envelope. You know, if you, 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 if you think using the F word is pushing the envelope, my grandmother says the F word, so you're not shocking anybody anymore, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's, and also, you start relying on that as opposed to adjectives, and, and you become less creative. It's easy to write blue material. I could, look, I've done stag roast. I can do a stag roast with the best of them. You know, I'm a, I'm a street kid. I don't have a degree from academia, but I got a doctorate from the streets. I grew up on the streets. You know, from the time I was eight years old, shining shoes in bars, setting pins in bowling alleys, caddying in the summertime. Uh, you know, uh, I worked in a pool room. I hung out in pool rooms. I, you know, I went in a service for four years, you know, I'm a street guy, you know, but there's a time for those kind of jokes. And there's a, you know, yeah. and again, you know, there is only one rule in comedy, be funny. That's the only rule. You know, I mean, I love Richard Pryor and, and I love right. comics like that. 
you know, uh, but I chose to make a living in a different way. More with comedian and actor Tom Dreesen in just a moment. Have your collectibles taken over your house? Well, maybe it's time for those treasures to find a new home. And I've got just the place to help you do that. The place to go is Baseball Cards and Bobbleheads, where they are always buying. Baseball Cards and Bobbleheads has over 35 years of experience buying collections of sports cards, memorabilia, bobbleheads, toys, action figures, comic books, Hot Wheels, Star Wars, movie posters, and more. If you've collected it, there's a good chance they'll buy it. No collections are too large or too small. Call Baseball Cards and Bobbleheads at 310-534-4180 or text them pictures of your collection. That number again is 310-534-4180. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi nationwide on the Talk Media Network. Hey, I'm Paul Shortino, and you're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Rock on. Let's return to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps. We are talking with comedian Tom Dreesen, author of Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. Well, you know, I'm glad you brought up Pryor because I remember that. But wasn't part of it, too, because the stuff that Pryor was doing at the time and what have you, it was part of the, you know, that whole thing of the street and how he grew up and so forth. And now... You get people that just, that's the way they do it. You know, every other word, like I say, is the F word or what have you. It's become too easy a crutch over time. Well, you know, Richard worked clean. People didn't realize, you know, he did like 60 Merv Griffin shows clean. He did, he had Sullivan shows clean before he, he went into the other area. By the way, <clears throat> he was he was a brilliant stand-up comedian, and, 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 uh, and I loved Richard. I, I knew him, and, and I liked him a lot. And we had a lot of great conversations together. But... You, when you go, if you're going to go to work blue material, make sure that it's in proper content. You know, if you're using the word just for shock value, uh, after a while it loses its value. In comedy, anytime you use you use an adjective too many times, it will uh, it will lose its effect. You know, the problem with the F word, it can be a noun, a pronoun, an adverb, an adjective. You know, you can, it can, you can work it in anywhere. So you become pretty reliant on it and get pretty lazy with it. You know? That's true. You know, and that's why one of the things that people might not realize, you know, you're all over the country, you're working all the time. You also do these corporate gigs, and that's a whole other world. And I know, you know, I, I was reading some of the reviews from yourself. They love this sort of thing. You enjoy doing that because I know, you know, to do those type of things, you kind of have to understand the group you're talking to and, and you, you, you kind of have to uh, not only play uh, clean, but uh, you've got people that are doing a bunch of other things. you got to make them forget that for an hour or two. Well, here's the thing. <clears throat> they once asked Willie Sutton, why do you rob banks? He said, because that's where the money is. You know, <laughs> yeah. uh, why do you do corporate dates? That's where the money is. <clears throat> you can make more money for one corporate date. Then you can for working three for working for a month in a comedy club somewhere, you know, and 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 it's also you don't have to worry about the draw, you know, 
if if AT and T or IBM or American Airlines wants to hire me for their their annual awards dinner or whatever it is, the people are already there. I don't have to worry in my dressing room. Uh, did we sell out tonight? Or how many empty seats are out there? You know, a corporate date. You walk on the stage, you do forty five minutes of wholesome good material. You walk up, they hand you a check, like I say, for more than you can make for a month in a, in a comedy club. You know, uh, or even a nightclub sometimes. You know. So that's where the money's at, and that's why it's it's great to do that, you know. Well, let's tell people how they can get a hold of you, and they want to know where you're going to be appearing or anything like that. Where do we go on the web to find out more about uh, where Tom we can see Dreesen. Tom? TomDreesen.com. It's, it's Tom, of course, T-O-M-D-R-E-E-S-E-N. Everybody spells my name wrong. They put an extra S in there, but there's only one S. D-R-E-E-S-E-N.com. TomDreesen.com, and it'll tell you where I'm going and how you can get a hold of me and contact me and and uh, communicate with me and write letters to me and and, uh, and hire me, if you like. Well, we I think that's a great idea. We'd love to have you out again sometime. Tom, thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Anytime, Steve. Let me know. Let's switch now from the showroom to the casino. Time to meet John Friedel. He's a doctor, an engineering professor, an aerospace engineer. He has a doctorate in engineering. And yet, he calls himself Professor Slots. And there's a good reason for it, because in addition to all that sort of science stuff, he's really studied and found ways that you can really do the best you can on slot machines. So we're really interested in talking with him. He's been on once before. Uh, John, talk a little about why people come to you. I mean, everybody plays the slots at one time or another. Isn't that true? I mean, some people love it. Other people maybe play one time a year when they happen to be with some friends and so forth. But everybody wants to do the best they can. Absolutely. When I uh, was going myself, I sat down the very first time years ago, and I kind of, I kind of looked around and, and said, I'm going to push a button. That's like apparently what I do here. Uh, I've learned that there's quite a bit more to it than that. So if you sit down on a machine, yes, there is only one thing that you really can do is push the button. But when? And, uh, you know, what time of the day, which machine, how do you choose, even what, what casino might you be at? Uh, and one of the things, I know you're centered on, on Las Vegas, and this is certainly something that's true there with this approach that I have, but what casino do you go to? Is there any reason why you should go to one versus another? Well, there is. State gaming commissions have a payout percentage that they receive monthly, and you can look at those reports. Not every state has them and choose a better casino to improve your your baseline odds. And then there's more more than that. Like, okay, so you choose your casino, and then you choose a slot machine in the casino, and there's tips that I give for that, a goodness ratio that helps you at least avoid the, the, the poor slot machines, the ones with the terrible odds. Uh, and then you sort of proceed from there. But this is also for outside of Las Vegas as well, because as you know, since about 2008, there's been a lot of casinos that have opened up in my area in Ohio, in southern Ohio. I have a choice. I think this excites people because a lot of people go to play slots, and I've talked to them, and they say, well, I know it's just a million to one shot. I'm probably going to lose. It's just for fun and so forth. But you're telling them, no. I mean, you certainly can lose. There's no question about that. But there's a smart way to do this, and you really can put some of those odds at least a little more in your favor. Yeah, I talk about on my website and my podcast, I I talk about, uh, hey, so you want to be an entertainment gambler. Well, 
what, would you like to be more entertained? You know, would you like to really get good at entertaining yourself? Uh, but maybe you want to make money. Maybe you want to have take-home cash, and entertainment is of secondary importance. Well, how do you go about doing that? What's that? How's that different from being an entertainment gambler? And then there's another intermediary uh, category where you're trying to get the cops. And if you want to have take-home cash, you know that's contradictory to being uh, a, a comps uh, player that where that's your gambling goal. So what is your gambling goal? Entertainment, comps, making money, and maybe some combination of those as well. So I talk about how what's your goal, what's your focus, and how to optimize on each one of those combined with choosing casinos and slot machines and sort of the whole package. Well, let's meet you first of all, because I think your story is fascinating. You go in back in 2003, like you said, you're just pushing buttons. You say you started observing things. So what were you thinking at that point? Well, I had not been to a casino before, and maybe four months before that, that, that run of winning, I you know, discovered that you could go and try to make some money. I played a quarter machine where the maximum jackpot was $1,000. And after three months, I won the top jackpot. And I, and I thought to myself, that's not a lot of money compared to my student loan debt. I wonder what I might be able to do. And the internet at the time, Netscape, if anybody wants to remember that. Wow. Uh, yeah, at the, at the internet at the time said, well, if you want to win big, you have to bet big. And they talked about some other things, and I took it all with a grain of salt, but I went looking. This is what I currently call an older-style casino, where every slot machine is independent. It runs its own odds. There's no central computer like many new casinos have these days. And so the odds were adjusted by a slots mechanic. And when the casino wanted them to change the odds, they would go through all the slot machines, open them up, and change the odds again. We'll be back in a moment with more from Professor Slots. To get more of the professor's advice, visit his website at professorslots.com. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi, coast to coast on the Talk Media Network. Greece is cheap. But the airfare costs a fortune. Paris? Not much closer. And again, airfare. What about Puerto Vallarta? Let's face it, flying anywhere is just too expensive. Wait, what's this? Low-cost airlines. With one call to low-cost airlines, you'll drastically slash your travel costs. We're talking insanely low airline prices to any of your favorite destinations. Where would you like to go? London, Rome, Costa Rica, Australia? Wow, that's cheap. So why wait? Call now to learn how crazy cheap it is to fly anywhere in the U.S. or international. Our prices are so low, we can't publish them. The only way to get them is to call to instantly hear the most amazing best deals on airlines travel it's that easy so call now and start packing call right now 800-267-1806 800-267-1806 that's 800-267-1806 have you written a book you can become a published author with doran's publishing the nation's oldest publishing services company Countless authors have trusted Dorrance for nearly a hundred years to bring their book to the market. Our professional team will edit your text, design your book pages, and create an appealing, eye-catching custom cover. Plus, our authors benefit from a custom book promotion marketing campaign that makes your book available where people buy books, like Amazon and brick-and-mortar bookstores. So make this free call right now to claim 
your free author's guide to publishing. Don't wait another day. Take one step closer to realizing your dream of becoming a published author and seeing your name in print. You've already written a book, so the next thing to do is make this free call right now to Dorn's Publishing and get your free guide to publishing. Call right now. Call 800-923-8625. That's 800-923-8625. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Welcome back to Vegas Never Sleeps. You are listening to Professor Slots, the man with advice on how to win at the slots. I found a machine that the casino had set high odds to, by which I mean you won. Almost every press of the button, you won $5, $25, $50, something. And I noticed that it was near an open area, you know, where people would gather, like by a bar, and it was direct line of sight. And I understood that they set it up to win for a little while so that people would run to the, to the slot machines and spend money when they, because they're sitting there not really spending money and the casino is like, how can we fix this? So they have a budget, they set it up to win, and it was all very obvious to me. I wondered why other people hadn't noticed this. So then you take it to the next step. Talk a little about that because, you know, this was before Professor Slots, uh, this was like your graduate school work before you go and start teaching. You started making some real money at this. For six days, I won 13 taxable jackpots. The total of the jackpots came to about $30,000. $10,000 of that money went back in. About $10,000 at the time went to taxes and $10,000 you know, paid for my bills at the time. I got a new apartment and flat screen TV at the time. Uh, that was that was wonderful, and I, I didn't I didn't understand that most gamblers don't make money. What do they call it? A negative EV yeah. uh, game? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, really? Is that how it is for you? <laughs> and and I'm still struggling with that right now. I'm learning, not learning, but I'm listening to people talking about poker, uh, craps, blackjack. And not to play, but to understand what their experiences are. And if somebody has to win at a poker game, right? And that one person walks away with the money. I guess that's if you're good at poker, then you can win money that way. But I'm like, um, what about these slot machines where they adjust the odds and you can figure if you can figure out the pattern being done, uh, then you can win money and be over 100 percent on your payout, your payback return. Uh, But then there's the other side of things, which is. Back in 2004, 2003, there really wasn't any newer slot machines, newer uh, systems. Those came out in about 2012. So I have this other category of casinos called newer style uh, casinos where they have a central computer and all the slot machines are centrally connected uh, to that uh, computer. Is that the progressive stuff? Is that what that is when you see the big progressives? Well, that started, progressive started getting me clued into that because you know you have to have, uh, there's like four different kinds of progressives. There's a progressives of a, a group of slot machines at a carousel, and that's it. And there's others that are the same uh, properties, but in other properties. Uh, and that's a progressive series. So you have to be on the internet and go from casino to casino. Then you have cross casino properties where they all together 
contribute to the progressive. Uh, and so that's why you can get these million dollar jackpots is because there's just so many of those. But if you find a progressive on a carousel and you know that it's going to pay out at a certain value, get you and your cousins and your you know spouses and you sit down at every one of those machines when it gets close to the jackpot and maybe one of you hit it. It's called an investment. Make sure to visit ProfessorSlots.com to learn how you can improve the odds in any casino. Time now for your Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com. And Scott has something old and something new to share with you. The Flamingo, a lot of people think that was named after Bugsy Siegel's girlfriend from the movie. But you say that's just a myth. <laughs> yeah, it's a, uh, it is one of the, the more prominent myths in Las Vegas. And even among history buffs, they don't always get it right. So uh, because he's the flashier one, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel, he didn't like to be called Bugsy. He actually got pissed, uh, I mean, upset uh, when people called him that because it meant nuts, you know, like you're bugging out on somebody. Uh, he came along and saw a distressed situation with a guy called Billy Wilkerson. Uh, he was the one who decided that he was going to build a fancy uh, kind of L.A.-style uh, resort in the middle of the desert. And But Wilkerson kind of ran out of money. So Bugsy kind of schmoozed his way in and offered a little financial support from, from his mob friends. Uh, eventually kind of uh, muscled out uh, Mr. Wilkerson. And so Bugsy gets all the glory, but... Uh, yeah, that, that rumor uh, for a long time was, and it was just a coincidence because Bugsy's girlfriend, uh, her she, her nickname actually was the Flamingo because she had such long legs, but it was pure coincidence. The name had already been decided before Bugsy ever got involved, and uh, Bugsy's story didn't end particularly well. Uh, you know, uh, he's, he, he, uh, he kind of... People believe that he got on the wrong side of his uh, financial backers. The place, when Flamingo first opened, it wasn't very successful. Uh, it was kind of had a kind of disastrous opening. They closed it down, they reopened, and then it started making money. But by then, I think they were already they were already over uh, Bugsy's kind of uh, alleged skimming of profits and uh, investing so much in this place. But it, it really did set the tone for a lot of the, the other resorts to come. Uh, so we'll give them both credit because you can't build a place without the money to do it. And uh, but it wasn't Bugsy's vision. I think he, you know, he made some enhancements, uh, but for the most part, it was Billy uh, who was responsible for the flamingo. So we've got a couple of places when you speak of vision. Uh, one is, which I am fascinated by. I thought it was a joke when I first saw it. Uh, they're going to build a new Atari hotel, and if, at least the renderings of it. Look kind of interesting. What's your thoughts on that? Well, the uh, as you know, Vegas has a glorious history of renderings, <laughs> uh, some of which come past, and many of which do not. Uh, so, uh, this Atari situation is a questionable one. Uh, the rumor is that they've acquired five acres on the Las Vegas Strip, and it's going to be a video game themed. Uh, hotel. It doesn't sound like it's going to have a casino, so I don't care all that much about it because uh, I, you know, no casino. Well, why bother, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, but there will be gaming of a sort. Uh, obviously, with an Atari theme, they're going to a lot of those throwback video games. Everything's going to be themed Atari, from the bars to the restaurant, everything. Uh, it is. It's a big question mark where Atari is going to get the money to actually 
do this thing. Uh, they're coming into it, uh, making these announcements at a very weird time in the development of Las Vegas. Las Vegas visitation was flat even before the COVID situation, before right. the pandemic. So the idea of coming online, you know, even Resorts World, which is really getting close to being finished, it's bringing on 3,500 rooms at a time when demand was already flat or going down, and now it's really down. Uh, so a lot of these places are looking to the future, uh, but Atari's one of those where I wouldn't, I'm not giving it a huge chance of actually happening. It's an interesting concept, uh, but they're coming into a market they just don't, they don't know or understand. Uh, I actually broke the story that Vegas would be the first Atari hotel because they have uh, six or eight of these lined up, and it was supposed to be in Phoenix, I think. Uh, but I had heard that, that Vegas would be the first. I, I could see it breaking ground, but I just don't know where they're going to get this money. Uh, five acres doesn't sound like a, a sprawling uh, resort to me. Uh, but, I, you know, I love seeing new things. There's a lot of projects. Yeah. A lot of renderings have been announced. The Drew, uh, All Net Resort. There's another one called the Dream Hotel. You know, a lot of these are announced. A lot of them have renderings. But the, the reality is that it's it's an uphill climb, especially at a time when uh, the future of Vegas and demand in, uh, for rooms and all the other amenities that Vegas offers, it's just a big question mark at this point. Uh, a lot of hopes have been pinned on sports. That's gone away. A lot of hopes have been pinned on conventions. That's gone away. So if it's six months, a year, however long it takes for some of this stuff to come back, I don't know how you build a new hotel uh, in the middle of this. So I say more power to Atari. I hope it happens. Uh, but it's it's pretty shaky, uh, pretty shaky ground at this point. Thanks, Scott. Remember to visit VitalVegas.com every day for the very best in Vegas news. And please follow both shows on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for listening today. This is Stephen Manchie reminding you, Vegas never sleeps. Las Vegas, here we go! Are you being audited and do you owe the IRS $10,000 or more in back taxes? Is the IRS threatening to take more of your money? Don't fight the IRS alone. The tax doctor is here to help you negotiate a lower tax bill. The IRS can freeze your assets and seize your bank accounts, but you can stop these IRS actions. The tax doctor will fight for you using industry secrets that can stop any IRS actions, eliminate penalties and interest, and reduce your past tax bill so you pay the IRS less. If you owe $10,000 or more in back taxes, call the tax doctor now for a free IRS audit emergency review. Call 800-515-4956. That's 800-515-4956. Again, 800-515-4956. That's 800-515-4956.